0: good evening and welcome to this the fourth in our centenary, centenary series of lectures. I'm particularly pleased to welcome in the audience tonight Professor Hugh Strong, the Chairly Professor of the History of War and friends and past colleagues and colleagues from my uh, previous career. Some of you will know that uh, since the department has employed them in this they've all come from a military background. The first was Colonel Rodney Parsons who was from the Royal Regiment of Artillery. Uh, one of the two cat badges Uh, associated several hundred years ago with the appliance of engineering and science to to warfare. My late predecessor, Derek Cash, and myself uh, Mm -hmm. both came from the Royal Electrical Mechanical Engineers uh, who not only apply engineering principles uh, to the design of equipment at the front end, but also try and keep it all together during operations. So with that as a sort of personal background, as it were, I'm very touched to be uh, able to introduce this particular slot Uh, in in our centenary year. Ever since Cain slew Abel, mankind has unerringly exercised its survival by one group with a particular interest. Territorial, economic, revenge, having a go at another. And whilst primitive man may not have recognised it in the precise terms we do today, in order to do this more effectively, he engineered weapons, defence and attack machines to enhance the strategies and tactics of the day. It is, of course, a very complex picture uh, that we face today, with technology arguably influencing both strategy and tactics. And that which started life as a means for waging war has, in various forms, found its way into civilian applications. The military man is the oldest profession, is the engineer the second oldest, thereby displacing the other occupants of that position. (laughs) (laughs) Let me introduce our speaker, Dr Christopher Pugsley, was born in Wales, moved to New Zealand at the age of five, and when of age, joined the New Zealand Infantry. He retired in the rank of Lieutenant Colonel after 22 years of service. He describes himself as a freelance historian, is presently a member of the War Studies Department at the Royal Military Academy of Santos, which is a place I know extremely well. As you might imagine, he has considerable interest in the military history of the Antipodes, has written extensively and has, as a girl during his time on this side of the globe, Uh, of walking every New Zealand battlefield in Europe and the Mediterranean. I couldn't resist this as a slightly cheap shot. I suspect it excludes the Millennium Stadium, which was the scene of the recently Captain of France. (laughs) (laughs) At which point
1: I burst into tears.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We discovered, or we we renewed our friendship. We discovered that we were both at the Staff College in 1980. And uh, we've got one or two tales, no doubt, to tell later on. But it's his tale tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Christopher Posey. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Professor Borthwick, Chris, Hugh, uh, Brigadier Henshley. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for the invitation to be here. As an infantryman, um, it's only fitting I talk about uh, engineers at war, um, because as, as someone on the sidelines... I'm I'm best qualified to judge. But um, we tend to take the landscape of war for granted, but it's all around us. Windsor Castle, the Tower of London, the remains of the Moton Bailey castles that dot uh, the English landscape, uh, Edwards Castles in Wales, Maiden Castle, and the many bronze and Iron Age forts that one can find. Uh, Offers Dyke, Hadrian Wall, the list goes on. Go further afield, the Great Wall of China, the land walls of Constantinople, uh, all are testament to the skills of the military engineer. Uh, Here in Oxford, you've got the castle, and I understand still traces of the siege works from the English Civil War. An engineer, one who skillfully or shrewdly manages an enterprise. In old French, it meant a trickster or schemer and was sometimes applied in the military sense to someone who used stratagems in both offence and defence. It conjures up someone who can think their way through practical problems under intense pressure. Because often, the immediate issue that has to be solved reaches the walls. We often have and can see their achievements, but know fewer of their names from this period. Demetrius I of Macedon, given uh, the title, the besieger, for his ingenuity in devising new siege engines in the siege of Rhodes, uh, in 305, 304 BC. Among his creations, uh, Heliopolis, the taker of cities. Um, 125 feet tall and 60 foot wide. And, of course, there's the Greek philosopher and mathematician Archimedes. who used his engineering skills in, during the siege, the fence of Syracuse, 1213, 12, 1212. 12. And has said lost his life because being preoccupied in solving a theoretical problem, he failed to heed the warning of a Roman legionnaire. The kings of England each had their master engineers. William the Conqueror had uh, Humphrey de Talhouer, immortalized as we'll see in the far image, uh, in building the prefabricated fort that was shipped across uh, and directed at Pevensey. However, Humphrey had domestic troubles at home, and so he went back uh, to Normandy and was replaced by uh, the monk, uh, later Bishop uh, Gundolf of Beck, uh, who assumed the role, if not the title, of master engineer, supervised the building of the White Tower, and later the castle at Rochester. uh, And his engineering skills were an essential asset in the conquest of Britain. And as I've mentioned, it's testified by the Moton bailey castles that was part of the the securing of uh, both Britain and the disputed lands. And we can see it again with Edward's castle, and in the Scottish borders. Such men were jack of all trades, both in terms of the growing sophistication of fortifications, Conway Castle there, and with the advent of gunpowder, the manufacturing of cannon. No distinction, the military engineer was responsible. Gunpowder was simply another tool for the engineers who experimented how it could be used, both in battering down castles and how castles' defences needed to change in order to withstand it. It saw a revolution in the design of fortifications, the Trace Italienne, and uh, in the Italian wars of the 15th century, uh, Martini, the San Gallo family, uh, San Michele, and of course, Leonardo da Vinci, who was appointed. Uh, engineer to Louis XII of France in 1507. In England, the master engineer first became the first master of the ordnance and then master general, responsible for supervising the building of fortifications, barracks, artillery, the siege train, and military manufacturing, everything. Gradually, we see the separation into military engineers and gunners in the 17th century. Engineers being increasingly concerned with the construction of fortifications and devising methods for their defence and also their successful capture with the building of roads, bridges, canals and tunnels remaining essential corollaries to this. They were an elite body of experts, not yet officer status, but uh, certainly not uh, sappers, relying on the soldiery and conscripted peasants to carry out the manual work under their supervision. It was only in the late 18th century that we see the formation of specialist troops. In the United Kingdom, the Corps of Military Artificers. Changed in 1812 to the Royal Sappers and Miners, and confusingly enough, in a very British way, the parallel body of the Royal Staff Corps, a body of engineers under the Commander-in-Chief at the Horse Guards in direct competition with the Royal Engineers who owed allegiance to the Master General of Ordnance. And if you go to Sandhurst, where I work, there is the Staff College Bridge uh, commemorating Uh, their existence. The growing sophistication of fortification design and technology of gunpowder warfare highlighted the need for specialist training. Not seen as necessary uh, for officers and cavalry and infantry who learnt their job with their regiments. Peter the Great of Russia established colleges for engineers and artillery about 1712. The Holy Roman Emperor established an engineer academy in 1716. The Royal Military Academy evolved at Woolwich for the training of artillery and engineers and was granted a charter in 1741. And France followed suit in 1749. Uh, The French influenced the US Military Academy, which was established at West Point in 1802, especially to limit the youthful republic's dependence on foreign engineer and artillery specialists. Civil engineering became the foundation course at the academy, and for the first half century, West Point graduates were largely responsible for the bulk of the nation's initial railway lines, bridges, harbors, and roads. It was in the 19th century that we see specialist training offered to non-commissioned officers and soldiers for the first time, principally with Captain, later General Sir Charles Paisley, in schooling his Royal Military Artificers at Plymouth, and then uh, practicing them in practical, the practical conduct of a siege, and teaching them after hours in practical geometry plan drawing, and elementary fortification. In 1812, Paisley set up the Royal Engineer Establishment at Chatham, later the Royal School of Military Engineering. By 1865, it's interesting to look at the Chatham course. It included demolition, surveying, mapping, photography, chemistry, electricity, lith- uh, lithography, architecture and building, field fortifications, and ballooning. The engineer was an essential component of the small wars of empire in the 19th century. And I put that one up there almost as an indulgence, because it shows the lines of Torres Vedras that were replicated now in the range area at the Royal Military College, now the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst, You can go there, Uh, the ditches are still 20 foot high and uh, now covered by trees, but Wellington's veterans, when they came back to teach the cadets, had the cadets do something useful and build a replica. But if we look at the small wars of empire, um, I was fascinated uh, because of my New Zealand connection by the experiments conducted at Chatham on the most efficient way of breaching the palisades of the Maori fortified pa that confronted British soldiery in the New Zealand wars. And there we've got uh, a trace of the lines at Pāturangi during the Waikato wars. And when the British engineers studied them, they felt sure that a renegade uh, European officer must have trained the Maori because They were far too sophisticated for a tribal race. The demand for engineering skills expanded dramatically in the First World War. Here we have scenes from Gallipoli, and if we look at it, there you have the pioneer battalion dragging the water tanks up onto the headland above Anzac Cove, and there's the water tanks there. And down here, the work of the engineers, the steam engine that is to pump the water from the barges up to the holding tanks so it can then be fed into uh, the some 20,000 men that are crammed in that small area by gravity feed. However, as Saunders, who was the... um, Originally, the engineer here at, uh, in London at the waterworks there found to his cost that the capacity of the steam engine uh, couldn't do the job. But life goes on. If we look at the tiny engineer component in each division that, of the British Expeditionary Force that went to war, uh, two field companies and a signals company, and how it expanded by 1918 to over 1,800 units totaling some 300,000 personnel. Uh, encompassing tunneling, heavy and light railways, mapping and survey with the production at its peak of eight tons of maps a day to meet the demands for the Western Front, gas, chemical weapons, searchlights, construction of all types, bridging, balloons, forestry, waterways, docks, water purification, as we see there, supply, sanitation with baths, laundries, the the fodden thresh chamber that could steam clean uh, 20 blankets an hour, uh, all of these things, and the bloody reality at the sharp end of infantry being assisted by engineers to hold ground one or break through the German defenses with grenades, gas and oil projectors, Bangalore torpedoes that come in for the first time, and by track machines in the form of tanks. And uh, there's no guessing which one is the German one. (laughs) By the Second World War, the Royal Engineers were divided into three sections, field and fortress, Lines of Communication and Transportation. And there we are. And, of course, looking at some of Hobart's funnies, um, 79th Armoured Division, essentially a specialist engineer division, and the reality at the bottom of the sapper at the sharp end in the night breaching of Rommel's minefields at Alamein. What I want to do uh, for the rest of the lecture is to use that as a model to explore the engineers' roles. The lines of communication and then how we get and take the fortress. So let's have a look at moving to the field of battle. The Devil's Highways, marked on English maps and still very evident today, show the course of the Roman roads through Britain. They were the arteries of empire, mapping the course of campaigns and, uh, and of course, after the military, the politics and the economic wealth followed. Um, Ridley Scott's opening scenes of Gladiator uh, captures the complexity of a Roman fortified encampment with its protective walls and its engines of war. And it's a great opening scene. Each legion of 6,000 men provided its own security on the march by building Castro or fortified camps to a set drill and pattern as it moved. Uh, the legionnaire was trained in building field works, laying out camps, moving earth, making roads and employing subject populations as a labor force. They were skilled, professional soldiers, but there was also a group of specialist engineers under the command of a prefect, uh, the Praefectus Fabrum in each legion, uh, numbering some 150 specialists in the 6,000 who had the skills to supervise the building of the fixed and pontoon bridges, assembling the siege works, mine under the walls, and construct the siege engines using the muscle powers of the legionaries to do the donkey work. Getting there has been the reality of armies right up to this day. Uh, The simplest form of road in field engineering consists of two parallel ditches with the excavated spoil heaped between to form the camber. An alternative type, widely used in wooded swamped areas, is a corduroy road, made from felling trees to clear a path, split, splitting them and providing a corrugated highway. And it's interesting that it was used in Roman times. The corduroy roads of uh, planks were used on, certainly on the Somme and at Pashadale over the muddy ground and, again, during the Burma campaign. So nothing changes. Such roads were built for military necessity, leading to political control and economic growth. Field Marshal Wade and his redcoats carved the military roads across the highlands of Scotland to subdue the clans after the Jacobite Rebellion of 1715. We have the 1,500-mile Grand Trunk Road in India for the same purpose. Uh, The difficulties of building the Caribou Road in Canada, uh, where, as you'll see from the quote, unlike that very sharp uh, uh, parade ground dress of the uh, sparkling engineers, the reality was more of bearded, unkempt men with a buffalo robe and a roll of bacon tied up behind the saddle, my gun in front, my dress moccasins, leather trousers, ditto coat, and a very old hat. In New Zealand, during the invasion of the uh, Campbell's, uh, Cameron's invasion of the Waikato, 1863-1864, the war didn't start until the military road south from Auckland was built, And uh, what it needed was uh, it crossed the Hunua Ranges and after reconnaissance and mapping with it went the winter accommodation, of prefabricated huts, the redoubts to protect the road, the stone crushing parties uh, and the need to adapt artillery wagons to carry the crushed stone, uh, the clearing of trees back a safe distance to prevent ambush, uh, the building of the bridges and the culverts, the telegraph, the first in New Zealand that followed the road south, and the postal service that connected the camps. All essential tasks, all carried out under engineer supervision. A small Victorian campaign involving a field force of perhaps 1,500 soldiers. Uh, But in the difficulties that it encountered, a microcosm of every campaign. And canals and waterways, an essential adjunct to roading. And here you've got Vauban's canal uh, north without any crossings for about 12 miles from the fortress of Ypres. And of course, built uh, for the wars of the 17th century and yet Ironically enough, with the German uh, invasion and in the first and second Ypres, particularly uh, the second Battle of Ypres and the first use of gas by the Germans in uh, early 1915, you have the, uh, the loss of that ring of hills around the salient, and then the backstop, the essential backstop, becomes that canal still vital, still important 200 years after it's built. We've got similar canals in Canada. Colonel John By's construction of the Rideau Canal connecting Kingston with the Ottawa River as a defensive measure against possible American invasion. And we have military engineers using it in a civil sense, Arthur Thomas Cotton's uh, great irrigation schemes in India, a similar resurrection of the Nile Barrage in Egypt, and work by military engineers in South and West Australia. With uh, apologies to Buster Keaton, railroads match canals and moving supplies and soldiers in the 19th century. The American Civil War is an engineer's war. It's a battle for communications, whether the waterways of the Mississippi or the network of railways, essential to carry the vast tons of forage and fodder to supply the armies of the Confederacy and the Union. Not so much for the men, but for the horses. West Point, as I mentioned was almost exclusively engineers and artillery until 1817. And indeed, military engineers were the only engineers who are available to assist with the construction of public works. Uh, And so this battle uh, for uh, an advance on Richmond, uh, which is held up by the lines before St. Petersburg, becomes the long way around, that huge sweeping arc to cut the, Missis- of the Confederacy along the line of the Mississippi, and then uh, uh, Sherman's march through Georgia, uh, destroying the will of the people to resist, a battle for communications, maintaining the railways, destroying the railways as they advance into the heartland of the Confederacy. If you look at Palestine campaign in 16 to 18, Sinai-Palestine campaign, we see the same thing. The British advance is predicated on the way the railway creeps across the Sinai Desert with water pipelines and uh, engineers looking for and reopening wells along the way. And in France and Belgium, The railway operating companies bought uh, ammunition forward and evacuated the wounded and the light tramways in the trenches did the same. Uh, Next year you'll be able to uh, visit Wellington Cavern which is under the old town of Arras and see part of Uh, the enormous complex, uh, an underground city capable of accommodating 25,000 men in the medieval quarries, marked in red. Complete, which was built over Christmas 16, early 17, in time for the April offensive of 17, complete with electricity, running water and sanitation, and a light railway... Uh, that was capable of travelling from the centre of Arras, where you'd get on the train, go through the sewers, and either come down Godley Avenue up to the German front line or King's Road, with King's Road named with the stations between London and Glasgow and Godley Avenue because it was developed by the New Zealand Tunnelers, uh, the stations from Russell in the north to Bluff, in the bottom of the South Island. And it's quite interesting today. uh, You're conscious that Arras is up there, and you're looking at a sign saying, Kiora, New Zealand, carved on the wall. And underneath, one doesn't add that we still lost the rugby. (laughs) But the evidence is there. And, of course, bridging the water gap has always been a critical part of movement. And here we have Xerxes' uh, bridge of boats, and it's interesting to see the detail. They then began to build bridges across the Hellespont, from Abydos to that headland between uh, Cestus and Matthias, the Phoenicians building one of ropes made from flax, and the Egyptians building a second one out of papyrus. From Abydos to the opposite shore, it is a distance of almost two-thirds of a mile. But no sooner had the strait been bridged than a great storm came on and cut apart and scattered all their work. Xerxes flew into a rage at this, and he commanded that the Hellespont be struck with 300 strokes of a whip and that a pair of foot chains be thrown into the sea. In these ways, he commanded that the sea be punished, and also that the heads be severed from all those who directed the bridging of the Hellespont. Rough justice for engineers. (laughs) And this scourging was done by those appointed to do this graceless honour, and other builders were chosen. The bridging was was done in the following way. Fifty-odd ships and tyremes were set side by side, about 360... To form the Exunian Bridge, and about 314 to form the other bridge, all of them at right angles to the Pontius and parallel to the Hellespont, thus taking off some of the tension from the ropes. Once the ships were alongside one another, they released huge anchors, both from the end near the Pontius because of the winds blowing from that sea and on the other end towards the west and the Aegean because of the western and southern winds. A passage was left in the opening of the 50 oared ships and triremes in order that, if he wished to go into or out of the Pontus, he could travel through in a small ship. Having done all this, they stretched ropes from the land and twisted them with wooden pulleys. And they did not keep each separate, but assigned two flaxen cables and four papyrus cables for each bridge. Each type of cable was thick and comely, but the report goes that the flaxen cables were heavier, a single yard weighing over 100 pounds. When the sea was bridged, wooden timbers equal to the breadth of the floating ships were felled and were laid on the stretch cables, and laying them alongside one another, they tied them fast. Having done this, they put down brushwood, laying it on the timbers, and they put down earth on top of the brushwood, stamped it down and built a fence on the earth on each side in order that the beasts of burden and horses would not be frightened by the sea flowing beneath them. And uh, as a frequent visitor to Turkey and to Gallipoli, And anyone who's crossed uh, the Straits at Chinacoli and seen those winds there, one wonders at uh, the feat of that achievement. And and, um, in 480 BC, a king's vision was put into effect by engineers. Uh, We do not know their names, but we can certainly admire their skill and confidence. Uh, If one had doubts, one would get a fast horse and leave Xerxes' presence very quickly indeed. But one suspects it wasn't fear of losing one's heads that drove them to do the king's bidding, but the challenge of doing the near impossible. The equivalent of Xerxes' achievement in the Second World War is the Mulberry Harbour. And there's Winston Churchill's famous minute of May 1942, declaring that the piers, for use on the beaches, must float up and down with the tide. Don't argue the matter. The difficulties will argue themselves. Built under civil contract, uh, highly complex, but inherently simple. Uh, The British mulberry at uh, Aramash that we see there, an outer breakwater initially formed by sunken ships and then concrete caissons, protecting uh, an inner harbor of some 1,300 acres extent, two miles long and a mile out to sea. And we see there the uh, three piers, effectively floating bridges, 80-foot span, carried on reinforced concrete pontoons. The whole equipment towed across the channel began to arrive on D plus one. It started to operate on D plus four, And by the end of August, 488,700 tons of stores had crossed uh, those piers. Uh, (coughs) Indeed, 40% of all the supplies that had landed on the beaches in that period. Mobility. Bridging is essential to mobility. And pontoon and bridging was practiced at Sandhurst and at Woolwich, uh, and it was a critical skill. Bridging and roading became critical in the movement of massed artillery during the First World War. Here we see uh, the Canadian engineers crossing the Canal du Nord, and with the advent of tanks and heavy equipments, uh, the bridging had to match. The Second World War example, of course, is uh, Donald Bailey's achievement with the Bailey Bridge. Um, Production began in July 1941, and by December 1941, it was with the units in the field. Um, During the war, 490,000 tonnes of Bailey Bridge was manufactured, and if you put that end-to-end, that's some 200 miles of fixed bridges and 40 miles of floating bridges. And if you go uh, to the Senio and the Po today, you will still see large warehouses full of Bailey bridge uh, bridging that's been there since the Second World War that's on standby in the events of bridges being washed out by floods. Montgomery regarded uh, the, the Bailey bridging uh, as making an immense contribution to the operations both of the 8th Army and the 21st Army Group. Um, And Eisenhower, the supreme commander, considered the Bailey Bridge one of the three most important developments of the war effort, on a par with radar and the heavy bomber. And, of course, amphibious warfare is also the preserve of the engineers. If you look at the United States Navy construction, battalions in the Pacific, making uh, the island hopping campaign possible, um, and critically building the airfields. Airfield construction is a story in itself. Um, The vast acreage of runways that covered aircraft or airfield Britain, so critical for Britain's survival in 1940, and the battles of attrition over Europe that followed from 41 to 45, and the rapid development of airfields in Europe, in Burma, aided by perforated steel plate uh, to keep pace with the army's advance. And as armies advance, they need to be housed. Uh, Hausteds, the camp along Hadrian's Wall, the way stations. Eventually, the prefabricated huts in the Crimea matched by that critical mile of railway coming up from the harbour. And perhaps uh, uh, the most important of all, um, Major Peter Nissen that you see on the left there and the Nissen hut. Um, We also have uh, Major Armstrong's design or uh, the prefabricated hospitals here in the United Kingdom. Um, Tin towns of 600 beds, which by 1917 accounted for 320,000 military hospital beds in the United Kingdom. But let's go back to the circular Nissen hut. I think the quickest one went up in an hour, 26 minutes, uh, uh, Nissen himself um, based it on a circular, a sem- the semicircular shape on the drill roof uh, of the drill shed at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. So there's a university connection. And uh, first prototype was built August 1916. By the end of the war, over 100,000 had been manufactured. Uh, Nissen quite sensibly patented his invention and then followed that up with patents in the USA, Canada, South Africa, and Australia. He didn't get any money uh, during the war, but it's interesting that when uh, the British Army sold its surplus, Nissen huts, after the war, uh, Nissen's cheque was 13,000 pounds, uh, which wasn't too bad in 1919 money and a DSO to boot. (laughs) The skills of the military engineer have always been applied to the broader military field. Captain Joshua Jebb established the model for prison design with his plan for Pentonville Prison in 1837. Captain Douglas Galton revolutionized barracks and hospital constructions with his innovations in heating and ventilation. Cast iron frame buildings were also of oil engineer speciality. Sappers worked on the covered slipways at Chatham and on the great exhibition buildings. In 1854, the South Kensington Museum, and there's the dome inside the South Kensington Museum, now the Victoria and Albert Museum, was erected on land cleared by a party of soldiers from the Corps of Royal Sappers and Miners. Uh, the museum, opened in 1857, was designed by Captain Francis Folk, uh, Royal Engineers, who, in addition to his work on museums and galleries, was a restless inventor, being credited with a very portable fire engine that was adopted by the army, a collapsing camera, and a bath that would pack up like a book an improved umbrella so constructed that all its parts should be contained within the thickness of an ordinary walking stick, however that proved impossible to make, and a lighting machine used throughout the Kensington Museum uh, which would ignite some hundreds of gas burners within seconds. In 1864, he started his last great design, uh, the Royal Albert Hall. However, uh, he died uh, uh, the following year and the design and work on the Royal Albert Hall was continued by Colonel Henry Scott, uh, Royal Engineers. At that time, Scott's claim to fame was uh, his work on various forms of concrete, some of which then went into commercial manufacture, and he also perfected hatchering, the system of representing heights on maps. And, of course, the great feature of Scott's uh, work was the dome. And it said that when it was completed in 1871, Scott ordered everyone out of the building and knocked away the last support alone. (laughs) Faith or just wanted to savour the moment. And so we've got there. We've got to the primary task, uh, the battle itself. Uh, and in terms of fortification, the king's master engineers have left their monument, as I've mentioned, throughout Britain and throughout the world. I, I, was set, uh, I put that up, Great Wall of China, uh, because uh, I thought, until John mentioned it, that it was the one thing, that man-made object you could see from space. I understand there's a rubbish dump on Staten Island that's bigger. Um, However, the Great Wall of China, in fact, one of 20 such walls, uh, and that's the one that survives, uh, the world's longest man-made structure, made uh, to control the boundary and as a defensive barrier uh, with uh, soldiers able to walk along its walls, 3,948 miles from Shanghai Pass, Pass in the east to Lop Noor in the west. Walk Choi, by contrast, and it's about six, dare I say it, rugby fields. Uh, in size, tiny. You can walk it in an hour. But as a lesson in military engineering, it's humbling to see the skill of how those walls are carefully angled and how uh, the arrangements of the blocks of stones make it almost impossible uh, to prise it apart. Uh, All done by hand under masterful supervision thousands of years ago. Subterfuge by means of, I guess, an engineer-built wooden horse uh, was the only way in or starvation, usually beyond the sta- r- staying power of the rampaging armies of the time. But siege craft was also the skill of the castle builder. And the one that dominates the European landscape is Vauban, military engineer to Louis XIV, leading engineer of his age whose surviving fortified towns in northern France uh, give uh, ample evidence of his genius. Starting as a king's ordinary engineer in 1655, marshal of France by 1703, his defensive zone uh, allowed him to gradually evolve uh, three series of defensive works, and that is the final product he was, he had a national vision to meet Louis' aim, yet at the same time, he was a master of detail. In his lifetime, he built 33 new fortresses and remodeled hundreds of others and also built the defended dockyards to support Louis' dream of a powerful navy. A similar figure is Sinan, military engineer and architect, to Suleiman the Magnificent, who after serving uh, on four of the Ottoman emperor's campaigns became chief of the imperial architects at the age of 50 and in 47 years created some of the architectural wonders of the world. <coughs> the Suleimani uh, Mosque in Istanbul and the Solemni Mosque in Edirne, And... Uh, you're conscious of that genius uh, when you stand on a crisp, clear morning overlooking the Golden Horn from the uh, balcony of the Suleimani. And of course, if you're in Istanbul, you've got to walk the Theodosian land walls that protected uh, Constantinople for a thousand years, improved by Constantine and finally uh, falling to the canon and siege craft of Selton Mehmet the Conqueror's engineers on the 29th of May, 1453. And so it goes on. The siege works around Richmond, the Maginot line, uh, the Siegfried line, without washing, the um, Rommel's defended line along the coastlines of France. And there we see uh, Hobart's Funnies, the Avery engineer vehicles, uh, trying to breach them on D-Day. All drew on the skills and imagination of engineers. And, of course, in terms of field defences, just look at the problem that the infantryman faces at Passchendaele, trying to break through the muddy wire barriers, all covered by bunkers and interlocking machine guns, stretching back six to eight kilometres in depth, deliberately designed to force British artillery to move at the critical moment. Or Rommel, forced on the defensive uh, at Alamein, Uh, Building his chocolate ghetto, his black forest cake almost of devilment with his uh, uh, devil's gardens. These layers of minefields, anti-personnel, an anti-tank, the anti-personnel mines being the S-mines that... uh, on being triggered, would leap up out of the ground at about groin height and then spread its deadly uh, circle of ball bearings uh, to inflict uh, maximum damage among the infantry, Uh, wounding, not always killing, but uh, wounding indeed was guaranteed uh, that... uh, the difficulties of a platoon or or company in just trying to clear the casualties. And interspersed with that, as you see, those circles, the um, Italian and German defenders positioned uh, like layers of cream inside the ghetto uh, to stop Montgomery's infantry and armor breaking through. Uh, Devilish defences, and we see it still today. Um, Grozny, Fallujah, uh, examples of engineers' deadly art. And uh, denying access, more recently still, Israeli ceding uh, the Hezbollah uh, strongholds in Lebanon at the end of the recent campaign. And so in Britain, they say, follow the sappers because they always have to go first. And once again, throughout history, it's likely that Jericho didn't fall to a blast of trumpets at God's command, but rather collapsed owing to the work of Israelite engineers who had mined under the city walls, set fires, and caused the structure to collapse. And if we look at uh, Masada, uh, Herod's fortified palace on its impregnable plateau uh, after the fall of Rome, where in 73 AD the Roman commander Flavius Silva uh, determined to besiege, and the work in building that tower, that battering ram, on a a mound of earth. And if you go there today, you can still see traces of the timber structure that underlaid it and allowed him to uh, reach and subdue the defenders. And as we know, at the point of breach or surrender, uh, a mass suicide happened. And uh, a final breach is not as easy as this. And if we look once again at Vauban in taking uh, the type of fortresses he built uh, and his quotation, the more powder we burn uh, the less blood we lose. And if you look at Vauban he mastered how to take castles and uh, fortifications. First, in his handling of the siege at Maastricht in 1673, he developed the standard method of attack in the age of artillery fortification, moving forward by successive parallels connected by zigzag saps until the rampart could be breached at close range, and the assault delivered. And there we see the lines of circumvallation around uh, the castle, him sapping forward, erecting batteries, taking the outworks, and finally breaching the walls. And he didn't do it as a distance. He directed 48 sieges, was wounded eight times, always in the thick of it, going forward to see for himself If a breach was ready to storm, muttering in a strong Burgundian accent, that's ripe. In other words, it's ready or that's not ripe. And at the point that it was ripe, then it was the engineers who placed the charges and ignited the fuses. It was the engineer officers and the 14 sepoys of the powder bag party that uh, uh, placed. Uh, the charges at the Kashmir Gate uh, during the great siege, uh, during the Indian mutiny and the storming of Delhi. Uh, it's recorded on the base of Queen Victoria's statue at uh, the entrance to King's Walk at Sandhurst. Engineers led the way in the Peninsular War and in 1860 in taking the Taku force. The engineers had to be uh, at the start. We see it there and it's the case ever since. Officers and sappers in combination whether as a listening post uh, in the underground war during the First World War or uh, a mine clearing party at Alamein or leading an engineer thug party ashore at D-Day to mark and clear the lanes or in Iraq or Afghanistan today. This has been something of an idiosyncratic uh, survey. The spectrum is vast, the example's endless, but one thing is certain. Whatever the individual, whether a religious zealot um, on uh, your, your left or a surveyor-termed raiser of civilian armies on the right, Military engineers throughout history have always had to marry theory and genius to the practical skills of making it work in crisis on the ground. No small accomplishment. Thank you very much.
0: Play long. But I knew that everybody talks about their funnies, uh, and I, I know that bridging tanks were of course one of the funnies, and I think Flail tanks were setting off mines with another. Are uh, there any other funnies which I did
1: know about? Uh, well, it, um, it's interesting. You had uh, the Avery tank there that with the uh, uh, with the bunker buster, a very almost like a mortar. Um, you also had. Um, what was it called, a bark, which had a ram on it which was designed to drag uh, bogged vehicles off the beaches, or, if necessary, if it was a burning vehicle that had been hit by a mine, it had uh, almost like an elongated dozer blade, uh, almost like a, a, a snowplow at the front, which would go down and deliberately uh, push the vehicle out of the way to allow other vehicles to get through. Um, You had the fascine carriers, the track, uh, which were uh, carrying uh, huge bundles of uh, wood or timber to drop in anti-tank ditches, or the other ones were um, the track layers that uh, put down almost like a perforated steel track, uh, once again, to allow... um, um, engineers, or uh, the vehicles off. And, of course, you know, uh, as I'm talking and thinking furiously, uh, the crocodile, the flamethrower tanks, that, um, um, and also there was a Bren carrier variant of that. So, uh, you know, and, of course, the large bridge layers and and the ones I showed, which I can't remember. But how will that do for a start? (laughs) But amazing, really. You know, here's... Um, of, and the one I should have mentioned right from the start, uh, the duplex drive, Sherman tanks, with their canvas skirts, rubberized canvas skirts that allowed them to uh, be let off offshore and with a, um, a, drive, a track drive that allowed them uh, to come in as amphibious tanks, then, like all good tanks, lowering their skirts and getting down to the business. We won't take that analogy any further.
0: <laughs> it's a fascinating lecture and I'd like very much on behalf of everyone to
1: thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks so much.